Well, a few weeks ago, I'm not sure many of you remember, but we were looking at the first six verses of chapter four of First John. And when we looked at the first six verses, we were looking primarily at this idea that John drew about testing the spirits to see whether they're from God. And as we noted last time, John raises that matter in response to the rampant false teaching that was going on at the time. The message being promoted by these false teachers was, ironically, that of Christianity. There was a ring of truth to it. They had a Jesus who interacted with men, a Jesus who performed many miracles, a Jesus who came and helped people, a Jesus who healed people. It had a ring of truth to it. But as John points out to us in those first six verses, this Jesus who was promulgated by these false teachers didn't come and clothe himself as a man. He didn't take on flesh as a man. He only appeared to be a man. So the false teaching there was that he simply appeared to be a man and wasn't actually a man. And John provides us with two means to distinguish whether someone is actually preaching the true gospel, preaching the true Jesus or not. He wants us to carefully consider whether the individuals who were confronting these people within this local assembly were actually uh, preaching from the spirit of God or whether they were preaching from the spirit of error. And the two, two ways that he does this is by asking or by requiring rather that the persons within this community look at the confession of others concerning Jesus and look at who they're willing to listen to concerning Jesus. So two things, one, the confession, and two, what they believe. And lastly, we looked at John's confidence that though this church was in its early stages and you could say that it was in a vulnerable stage, yet John was confident that the Christians there had overcome the evil one, had overcome those who were preaching in the spirit of error because they held fast to the apostolic teaching. So that's what we looked at last time we were here. And I raised that simply by way of reminder, but we're actually moving away from this idea of uh, testing the spirit and moving on to the theme that John has gone through many times before in this epistle, and that is the one of Christian love. The epistle that we have before us isn't like the Pauline epistle. It doesn't, John doesn't start a case and keep building upon it and keep building upon it. Like, say, Paul, where he starts by pointing out sin in his letter and then builds upon that and talks about works and how the works of man are worthless and then the covenant of works. That, that isn't how this epistle is structured. It goes around in concentric circles, uh, highlighting various things about the Christian faith and showing us really what a Christian is. Christians, as John is going to point out here, are people who love one another. If you've read through the book of 1 John before, you may have noticed that John spends a lot of time talking about love. In fact, more than any other reality of the Christian's life. That may not be obvious at this juncture as we've spent more than a year in this book, but just by way of reminder, in chapter 2, 
And between verses 7 and 11, John highlights this idea of the commandment to love being both new and old. And as we explore that seemingly contradictory notion, we draw the idea that it is old, it's an old commandment because it existed in the garden. Adam was given the commands to love people. Adam was given the command to love God. It's old in that sense. The command is old. But it's new because it's a commandment that was given by the Lord Jesus himself before his crucifixion. And as one commentator notes, the newness of the command isn't in the content, because that's the same. God's moral law doesn't change. He doesn't add caveats, and that, that's not how the moral law works. It's tied to God's nature. But one commentator says that the newness of the command is really found in the newness of the motivation. Jesus calls us to love one another because of his love for us. So the command is tied to his own love for us. And John argues that those who do not love their brother falsely claim to know God. And in chapter 3, we see an expansion of these ideas. Same, same basic theme, but again, circling around it, just in a different way, looking at it in a different aspect. From verses 11 to 18 in chapter 3, John explores this comparison between Cain and Jesus. And in that section, there is a comparison between Jesus the life-giver and Cain the life-taker. And John is using them to point out that if you hate your brother, you're like Cain, someone who takes life, one who doesn't seek to have it flourish. And if you're like Jesus, you love your brothers, and therefore you seek to sustain life, even at the expense of your own. So in both of these chapters, John is making the case that having love for fellow Christians or loving one another is so central that without it, you cannot claim that you are within the confines of Christianity. And now we arrive at the portion of our text where John demonstrates what I would call most clearly and most forcefully why Christians ought to love one another. Far from what some may say of the church, the church isn't a social club in which we just get together and have fun activities or whatever. Far from that, the church is an organization in which persons gather around the preaching of God's word, saying of God's truths, but they also are a group of people who are deeply devoted to one another, deeply committed to one another. It's not like a dominoes club where you go play dominoes and that's it. You're just done with that because dominoes is the thing that binds us and I'm just done. That's not, that's not how it is. John is pointing us here to the fact that the church is, is comprised of persons who love one another because they've been born again and know God's love in Christ Jesus. And that's the big idea tonight. Christians display love to one another because they are born of God and know God's love in Christ Jesus. That's the big idea. So let's, let's work through that and let's begin by first just looking at the fact that Christians love one another because they've been born of God and know God's love in Christ Jesus. In verses 7 and 8, we read, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, 
because God is love. Notice the passage says, anyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Knowledge of God is therefore a necessary condition for, for loving the saints. Knowledge of God and being born again are necessary conditions for loving the saints. But we shouldn't take knowledge of God and being born again as two separate realities that are related to one another or that Christians experience apart from one another. Knowledge of God springs from the new birth and cannot happen apart from it. What John means by the knowledge of God as we've highlighted in passages before, because John has dealt with this idea of knowledge of God before. What John means in, in summary, taken from previous chapters, is simply this idea of relationship in which two parties are united in such a way that there's intimacy that ultimately leads to a certain way of living. It's an experiential knowledge. It's not a theoretical knowledge. It's not abstract knowledge. It's not the trigonometry that you learned in form two that you have no idea how it relates to life, etc. That's that's not the type of knowledge that John is talking about. He means a knowledge that's been felt, that's been sensed, that's been experienced. But John's point isn't to explain the relationship between the knowledge of God and the new birth. His point is simply this. If you don't love the saints, you have not experienced the new birth, nor do you know God. In other words, lack of love for Christians is really indicative of your standing before God. As I mentioned before, in the mind of John, love for each other so distinguishes Christians from the world that he spends a significant portion of the epistle encouraging the saints that where their love abounds for one another, they can be assured that they're children of God. Just a superficial or cursory reading of the epistle of 1 John shows us this. The word love is used throughout the epistle 47 times in comparison to its closest competitor, which is sin, which is used 26 times throughout the epistle. So in, in the mind of John and the theology of John, Love for the saints is like a hallmark of Christianity. Like it's something that so distinguishes you, that should be so obvious about you. So as we move on to verse 8, we see that the way that John convinces us that this is true, that love for the saints is indeed a hallmark of Christianity, is by appealing to who God is. In verse 8 of this chapter we read, Anyone who does not love, does not know God because God is love. So we we saw that in verses 7 and 8, John says, well, you know, this hallmark of the faith, loving one another, is just a fact of Christians. Like, that is who Christians are. They love one another. In verse 8, he makes us see that the reason Christians love one another is because God is love. John, John enjoins our knowledge of God with how we interact with the world and more particularly men. Knowledge of God affects how you interact with other Christians. If you know God as one who is love, then you will love other Christians. It's important because here we see that when you consider your inability or your lack of motivation for loving other Christians, it isn't because you lack time. 
It's not because you lack the right circumstances. It's not because you lack people who have personalities that are compatible with yours. What John is saying is that those who know that God is love, love other Christians. John founds the reason, the rationale, the foundation for why we love other Christians in the reality of who God is, and as we will see later, what he has done on our behalf. Of course, in the life of an unbeliever who doesn't know God at all, the remark that John makes in verse 7 is true in its complete sense. John says in verse 7 that those who does those anyone who loves beloved let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Of course we know that this is true in its fullest sense for unbelievers. A person who has no love for Christian whatsoever is an unbeliever. Just that's a very plain and simple reading of the text. That's just an unmistakable inference that we should draw from the text. John is delineating, as he has throughout the entire book, true Christianity from fake Christianity. That's clear. But this has import for Christians as well. As we sometimes may not display a love for Christians that befits who God has revealed himself to be. And what I'm saying to you, dear Christian, is that your knowledge of God, and more particularly, your knowledge of his love, acts like a gauge for how much you will love other saints. Yes, ultimately, Christians cannot fail to love other Christians, otherwise, as we read, they're not born again, and they have no saving union with God. But hear this, Christians can falter in their loves for other Christians. Christians can love other Christians poorly. Christians can, at times, have waning affections for other Christians. Their love can grow cold. They can grow indifferent. That can happen in the life of a Christian. And so John provides us with this motivation for loving the saints, and that motivation is rooted in the knowledge of who God is. So let's explore that for just one minute, and we'll get back to this idea of connecting why our knowledge of God necessarily leads to our love for other Christians later. Let's first explore what John means when he says, God is love. When when you read such a statement, we obviously don't take it to mean that God is ontologically love. And when I say the word ontologically, I mean that the statement isn't meant to be a statement that defines God's being. We can say, for instance, that a triangle is a shape with three sides and three angles. We can say that's what a triangle is. By doing so, we've completely described what a triangle is. We've said everything there is to say about a triangle. Now that I've said it in that way, you should see that we shouldn't think that John is describing God in his completeness, in his completeness. This statement that God is love isn't a definition of God. We can say a plain shape with three straight sides and three angles is a triangle. In the same way we can say a triangle is three straight sides and three angles. But we can't say God is love and then say love is God. Because God is a personality trait. God is a person. So 
just to clarify that from the get-go, we, we aren't to think of God as simply an attribute called God. That, that isn't how we're supposed to think. So, if those aren't the ideas that John has in view, what does he have in view? Well, within the boundaries of orthodoxy, we would have to say that the intent of John is to communicate that love is God's nature. It is an essential part of who he is, and therefore he acts or behaves consistent with that nature. But while this claim that God is love communicates an idea to us about who God is, it's still kind of abstract when taken without context. To elaborate, it's like a low-level shopkeeper who sees this memo coming from head office in the USA and says, the strategic goal of the organization is to achieve market dominance in the Asian market by 2021. And Maylene is sitting down there trying to come her to And she's like, what am I going to do with me? <laughs> what, what, what bearing does that have on my life? What does that have to do with me? So the, the idea that God is love may seem kind of abstract. It may seem like if it's far removed from, you know, our understanding of who persons are and stuff. We certainly don't speak that way when we describe people. We don't speak that way. Just, just the bodily state, it seems a bit far removed from us. So, John takes the idea out of the abstract and makes it concrete by corroborating the statement that God is love. And the way he does it isn't by giving a summary of all the loving acts that God has done throughout the creation, because that would take more than the four verses that we have here. As Calvin notes, uh, when I was reading his commentary, this would include all of God's acts of creating the mountains, you know, communicating with men, giving the covenants, etc., etc., that would all be done. But what he does is he focuses on the greatest act of God's love. It's like if someone says to you that I am a beast, like, you would want to know, like, what could they possibly mean when they say that I am a beast? But if someone then went on to say, well, why do you, if the person went on to say, why do you, why do you say that? And the person just calmly said, well, he bench pressed the car. Well, you, it would suddenly become clear to you why it is the person is saying I'm a beast. Like, it becomes clearer when we have something to refer to when someone makes claims about someone. So in the same way, John makes a claim, God is love. And to support that claim so that it doesn't seem abstract and far from us, John provides us with the reasons why he says God is love. He pulls out God's or the Lord's biggest claim to fame, as it were, by appealing to what God has done for sinners through the gospel. John tells us that in order to know love, you must know what God has done on behalf of men, and particularly through the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we consider how God's love is shown through the gospel, we first see that God's love responds to our needs. When most people think about meeting needs, we rightly think about food, shelter, clothing. These are things that we need to sustain our lives. We need them to continue our bodily functions in this world. 
you don't have food, if you don't have it, you will die. If you don't have shelter or clothing, same thing, you will die. But with all the powers of human wisdom which have prolonged life, made it easier, made us more resilient, we still haven't furnished ourselves with the ability to maintain our lives. You've never seen someone who is able to claim that I'm just going to live forever. That's just not within your power or ability to do. That's just not possible. The state of man is that we are in consistent need of this one thing. The, the thing that we desire most is to live. And we see the text presents us with the reality that we actually don't have this by implication. It says that God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him, or in order that we might live through him. By necessary implication, this means that we didn't have life before. Death has been at work very shortly after the creation of until now. And its relentless mark seems to go unchallenged throughout the ages. It is at work in every man, and we are powerless in ourselves to provide a full remedy to its effects. But what's difficult to grapple with is that death is merely a symptom of a deeper problem. Death is what you get because of sin. Sin is the cause of death. The reason all men die is because of sin. First and foremost, because of Adam's sin as a judicial punishment under the covenant of works. But not only because of Adam's sins, my friends. We are also deserving of death because of our own sins. We are similar to the drug addict who continues to impoverish himself because he can, because he wants to enjoy the next height. That is how sin works out itself in our lives. We crave that, or we desire that, or we enjoy that, or we participate in that, which brings death to us. We take on the poison just like the drug addict, seeking the next high, not knowing that as we are enjoying ourselves, so it is that we are more quickly going towards our death and our destruction. I say that, friends, so that we don't come away thinking that death is some event that someone else is to blame for. We all know the, uh, the classic thing to do is to say that's Adam's fault, that's Eve's fault, uh, and Rightly so, we understand that Adam it has a certain responsibility as the first man, as a federal head. But what I want us to see is that we play a part in our own, our own, we have a part to play in our own uh, relationship with sin. It isn't that Adam sinned that we bear all the consequences because of what Adam did. It's that we sin. It's that our church, that the people of God are sinners and are deserving of death. We die because we sin. That is the bottom line. But look here at the love of Christ. Though we brought it upon ourselves, though we were the drug addict who was stealing your mother's money, who was bringing problems to their parents' home, though we were that person. Just like a father who goes out to seek out a son, Christ has welcomed us. That is the love that he has displayed to us. 
God the Son has entered the world to save sinners. In fact, let me say that more strongly. God the only begotten Son has entered the world. The Son that is unique and has a distinct position, dignity, and relationship with the Father being God himself. That Son, that unique Son, entered creation so that we may have our most basic need met, and that is to live. It was love that sent Christ into the world, John says. It was love that works itself out in seeking good on our behalf. And John tells us how he met our need. First, he offers his life for our own. We need a perfect righteousness to live before God in his presence and under his blessing. Without this perfect righteousness, we will be objects of God's curse. The second person of the Trinity, God the Son, took on human flesh so we could accumulate the righteousness which we did not have. But secondly, we have, throughout our lives, incurred guilt because of the sins that we have committed. The weight of God's wrath was directed towards each and every person who ever lived after Adam. Firstly, for Adam's sin, yes, but also for their own sin, which they committed throughout their lives. There are so many trespasses that we've committed throughout our lives, even within our Christian lives, which makes it even all the worse, right? I mean, at one time, perhaps we could claim ignorance, but now we can, yet we still sin. But yet God, knowing this, knowing from beforehand, the Father knowing from long before that we would be sinners, still decides to send the Son. Still decides, even though he knows that you're going to fall next Tuesday, you're going to bring this pleasure to him next Wednesday and the following Wednesday, still decides to send the Son to be a sacrifice on behalf of sinners. He still decides to meet our most basic need. John says that he is the one who presents us with life, as, as we read here. It says here in verse, in verse 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. He has given us life, even though we have desired death. That is what the Son has come to do. He has given up his own body to satisfy the wrath of God. That's what is in view here when John says that the Son was sent to be a propitiation for our sins. He was an offering which was sacrificed on behalf of sinful man. God the Father chose to bruise the Son. He chose to put him to death. He purposed for it to be spat upon and mocked by men, so that at Calvary the glory of his love would be revealed through the salvation of men. Saying the scary reality is that you are as I think John Piper has said most famously, you are more sinful than you know. And day by day, perhaps, we grow a little bit more aware and perhaps a little bit more uh, scarily aware of how sinful indeed we are. But consider the opposite side of the coin. That means that you're also more loved than you know. That means that the love of God that chose to cover those sins at Calvary is known even in a in fuller measure. It's known in a way that you before when you didn't know that you were so sinful is known all the more. There's more 
a, a greater sense of appreciation for what Christ has done. Well, let's pause here for a minute and also notice that it's God the Father whose love is in view here. Look at verse 9. Look at how it's worded. It says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent. The way the love of God or the love of the Father is demonstrated is that He sent the Son to make our own, to meet our most basic need. We often look at the love of Jesus for us, which is right and true. But we must consider that it was God the Father that chose to respond to your need by sending Christ. Of course, I don't claim to know the inner Trinitarian workings, but it was the Father's plan to send Jesus. Some way, somehow, we can rightly say that it wasn't the second person of the Trinity's plan to send himself. The pre-incarnate Christ did not just say, well, I want to do this, and went on his own mission. No, this was orchestrated by God the Father, who sent Christ. He came for your sake and for mine. And John further elevates, if it's possible to speak in such a way, the love of God by claiming that it was unconditional. Look at what we see here in the in verse 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. Christianity is not a religion founded upon a principle of reciprocation. When we see that God's love is unconditional, we mean that God's love for us is not influenced by anything outside of himself. There's no red tape that you have to go through, no fine print that you have to read carefully to become the object of God's love or to remain the object of God's love. There's no, there are no conditions. We are, in the truest sense, freely loved by God. There was nothing binding God to love you or me or anyone. The truth of the matter, saints, is that God simply chooses to love you. He simply chooses to love you. There's, there's no, when you get to the bottom of it, that's all there is, that he chose to love you. That is what we crave, isn't it? To be known and yet still loved. To be seen for what we are and yet cared for as though it isn't held against us. Consider all of your insecurities, friends, those things that make you ashamed when you think about or you don't want persons to see or hesitate when you speak about with others. God looks at you with a keener sense of who you are and loves you anyway. That's how God loves his people. That is his nature. He doesn't do it because you fulfill some condition or because you've become lovable. The only reason God loves you is because he wants to, because it is his pleasure. If you think that Christianity is a religion founded upon merit-based acceptance, meaning if you think that you can do something for God to love you, you actually have an unrealistic view of yourself. You actually have an exalted view of yourself if you think that you have anything to give to be thrice holy God. As John puts it, it isn't that we have loved God, but that He has loved us. He isn't saying, of course, that Christians have no love for God, but he's pointing out that God's love for us is not a result of our own love for Him. In other words, God doesn't operate upon a principle of reciprocation. 
if this were the case, we'd be in a pretty bad position. We would be in a pretty tragic position if we needed to somehow muster up some level of worthiness for God to love us. Friends, as we read, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. It never ceases. It's unwavering and it doesn't end. This is the joy of the Christian, our hope and our song. That is what it, that, it was not of any good that we have done to merit God's love, but that the Lord has chosen us. This is how we know the love of God. Are you feeling dumb concerning your sin? Are you feeling dumb concerning your lack of progress in the Christian race? Consider, friends, the singular proof of divine love, the cross. Think about it. Think about it and let until your soul is stirred by the Spirit of God. And so that you can also be filled with love for others, other Christians, primarily as we see in this text. It should be very obvious after going through this that the love of God can work in harmony with his justice and wrath. Some people think of God's love as indulgent. Basically, if we say that God is love, it must mean that he's so caring and so loving that he must overlook everything that we do. It must mean that, you know, I can do anything and I can go to heaven and the Lord will sing kumbaya with me. He sees the best you're doing and loves you anyway. But this view incorrectly speaks of God as one who is blind to injustice because he's paralyzed because of his love and affection for us. It's like the Greco-Roman myth where Cupid hits you when you can't do anything but be drawn to someone. Is God's love indulgent in that way? No, not at all. God was so indignant against sin that he poured out his wrath against his only begotten son. God did not look at our sinful estate and say, well, that isn't so bad, or well, it could be worse. There was no pandering or excusing sin. The horror Jesus experienced on the cross was the only way he could be saved, and God the Father spared no expense in meeting the high cost of sin. But even while we uphold that God's love is not indulgent, we should also consider that even in his acts of holy anger, even in his acts of justice, he's not cold or indifferent. We read in the Old Testament, though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from the heart. And further in Ezekiel, we read that the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God's nature is loving, so, so loving in fact, that he deals kindly with the sinner, the worst of sinners in a gracious manner, with kindness and compassion. God does not take pleasure in afflicting the wicked, even though he will indeed send the wicked to torment and hell if they don't turn in faith and repentance to Christ, if they don't embrace the love shown through the gospel. He, he will do that, but he doesn't take pleasure in doing it. In fact, quite the opposite. His desire is for everyone to turn and live. That's kind of hard for us to think about sometimes when we see the most wicked of men committing heinous crimes and our blood boils with anger. But have you considered that God has compassion on the most wicked of individuals? The terrorists, the rapists, the murderer, the leftist pro-abortion, race-baiting, critical race theory inviting politician. God has love for mankind, generally speaking. God is 
one who is full of love. His nature is one that is full of love. And as we see in the passage, it is directed, and, and John is making us see, it is directed toward you, Christian. It's directed towards you most fully in and through the gospel. To those who we think commit the most reprehensible crimes, though, God extends in and through Christ Jesus his willingness to pardon them at the cross. God is not barring people from coming to him. As we see time and time again in the scripture, Jesus invites persons to believe in him, even trying to convince people to believe in him for the salvation of their souls. Having been in the faith, some of us for years, we know well the great depth of love God has for us because of our own unworthiness. We've tasted it. We've known the God who is love. He has received us freely without condition, as John mentioned. He has received us without wavering, as his love does not wane when we sin. And the measure of his love is boundless. So, just to summarize quickly, we've seen the fact that a Christian is someone who loves other Christians. John states this plainly in verse 7, and we're still circling back around that. Secondly, we've also looked at this idea of what it means for us to consider who God is. God is love. What does that mean? He has sent his son into the world to die on behalf of sinners. That's, what, that's how John fleshes out. That's how John highlights or illustrates how God is love. Now we circle around to where we began. It should be fairly easy to notice that John is employing a very prominent pattern in the New Testament to entreat our obedience to God's commands. This pattern is the use of indicatives and imperatives. Just as I think Pastor John mentioned a few weeks ago, I think, um, the indicatives look at what God has done for us. They indicate what God has done for us and who God is. And the imperatives tell us what we ought to do. But the indicatives also serve the function of laying a foundation for the imperatives of what we ought to do. And in this case, the imperative is that we ought to love one another. Remember I said before that the knowledge of God and being born again affects how you interact with other Christians. Well, having looked at who God is through the acts that he's accomplished, let's circle back around to see this connection and answer the question, why our knowledge of God and being born again must lead to love for other saints? John's argument is this. If you claim to have experientially known the love of God displayed through the gospel, yet fail to love your brother, you have not known him or participated in the new birth. The logic of John's statement can be looked at in two ways. The first is having been born again or having participated in God's own nature, you ought to share similarity with God in the way or manner in which he loves. If God's nature is love and that nature responds by meeting the needs of others and in doing so in such a magnanimous way through the giving of his only begotten son, how can you not then respond similarly or look similarly to your father from whom you have received the new birth? We've explored this idea of likeness 
uh, in previous chapters, so I won't labor that point, but that's, that's one of the ways that John connects this idea of why the new birth leads to a love of other Christians. Because God loves Christians, you have participated in the new birth, and therefore you ought to love Christians as well, because you share in God's nature. That's one way. The second reason which I'll emphasize more is having received such a great love yourself, you ought to respond with love towards others. In other words, it's the only fitting response to someone who has known the love of God. Have you ever been in a situation in which someone did something for you that was so kind-hearted, so loving, that you just felt moved to reciprocate in any way you could, whether it was thankfulness, writing a letter, whatever it was that you thought you could do. You, you may have thought about just how thoughtful this act was, or the great lengths the person had to go through to do it, and so on. Like if you knew that you had an exam in an hour, just doing a scenario, if you knew you had an exam in an hour, and there was just no way you could get there, just no way, because it was rush hour, and someone skips their lunch break and just drives you quickly to your exam and you make it. Like they're famished, they skip their lunch, they have to go back to work, they're going to work hungry. You would respond in thankfulness to that person. You would be happy about what that person has done. Wouldn't it be so inconsistent then if the person asks you after your exam whether you could drop something off for them in the post box that was outside your office and you said, why would I do that? Like, how, how could you ask me to do something like that? That's so inconsiderate. In a similar way, can't we see that having received the love of God in and through Christ Jesus, that it is but a small sacrifice to pay, if we can indeed call it even a sacrifice. It is a small thing to do if we're called to simply love the saints. Those in whom is all of God's delight, as the scripture says, isn't that a very simple task that we are called to do? It would be inconsistent for us, having received such a great love, to not respond in love. Consider that if you are born again and know God savingly, that you have not merely received an example of love. It's not like a great example that you read in a book that you can feel mushy about and idealize this grandeur. It has been given to you, saying, it is you who Christ has died for. It is you for whom that blood was shed on Calvary's cross. It is for you, the, the anointed one, sweat tears, sweat drops of blood, pardon me, sweat drops of blood in Gethsemane. It was for you that he did May I remind you that in comparison to God, all the nations combined are less than nothing in comparative worth. Yet God treats his people with such kindness that he allows the darling of heaven to endure shame, suffering, and death. How then can we say we know this God who loves Christians so dearly and treat these same Christians with contempt or indifference? It is impossible. It's not conceivable. As the Spirit-inspired writings of John says, for one to claim that he participates in the family of God and yet shows no warmth, 
no compassion, no commitment to his brother means that you have not known the love of God. He does not visit you. He doesn't reach you. Indeed, you necessarily must be still dead in your trespasses and sins. So evident is the fact that you have not been born into the family of God and known God as your father that John provides no caveats. Am I saying the scripture teaches a Christian will always love other Christians? Of course not. I said so before. But I am saying that if there is no fruit of love for other Christians, then you are not planted in the soil of God's love. Or in other words, you have not known love because you have not known God. This is why we can't have private Christianity. I'm sure you know several people who have told you they have their own relationship with God. You know, they can have God, but then about them church people. I'm all sure we've encountered people like that. I was going to say news flash, but it's not new. So I should perhaps find another word. But it's pretty confrontational to say in this age of commitment phobia that you must be in a relationship with other Christians. To show the type of love that the scripture demands, you must be in a relationship with them. How would you show love if you're not in a relationship with other Christians? The love has to be directed towards something. It can't be just this nebulous feeling that you have. It has to be practically shown, just as the love of Christ was practically shown. The love of the Father was practically shown by sending Christ. It has to be practically shown. That's why it's so important to be involved meaningfully in a local church because that's just how God ordained the way that we can show love to one another naturally. That's what I would argue is the most effective way to display or the most effective forum, the most effective vehicle that we can use to show love practically to one another. Friends, the love of God comes to completion or its intended end when we love one another. And that's the point of uh, verse 12. It says, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. It's no different conceptually than when Paul argues in Ephesians that in love we were predestined to be holy. When John says that God's love is completed or rather perfected in us, he means it finds its intended end when we love one another. God has not simply sent his son so that you could reserve your place in heaven. God has sent his son to transform you so that you too can be someone who loves other Christians. That's what God has done. What this means is that we can't simply feel like we love other Christians, though that's important but we must also be loving to other Christians. So by way of application, before we close, I just want to highlight two ways that we can do this at CRBC. The first is quite obvious. We should be seeking to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters in the church. We have touched on this before, so I won't belabor the point, but love seeks to bring relief to the plight of others. Having known the love of God given to us in Christ Jesus, there should not be any deed we consider too great a sacrifice for the saints. To love the brethren means to give sacrificially at points. For some people, that may not look like giving money 
or some sacrificially giving looks like spending time with a brother or sister, giving an encouraging word with a brother or sister that lifts their spirits. For Pastor John, it may look like lightening his load of church duties for family with children. It may look like babysitting. For Sharika, it may look like bringing her nuggets when she's hungry. Like there are practical ways that we can help one another throughout this pilgrimage in our lives. And that's the way that the love of God, that's invisible, that John writes about, becomes known. There are many practical ways. The love of God for his saints did not cease with the ascension of Jesus. Far from it. God the Spirit now abides in Christians, inwardly communicating the Lord, the love God has for us. Yes, but it's through the testimony of Christ. But even more than that, it's seen practically. When that friend calls you in a desperate situation or seeks to earnestly pray for you week by week, that's how it's seen. Look at the love God affords, not only in sending his son to die for your sins, but also to call and commission other Christians to surround you with love. Secondly, love graciously bears with the differences and even sins of others. Sometimes our impression of something that someone has done to us or against us looms large in our minds and overshadows everything about that person. You can't help but to only think that individual of that individual in the context of their sin, and so you may feel like distancing yourself from them or giving them the proverbial cold shoulder. That's how we feel sometimes. But the command here to love dictates that the same friendliness Christ afforded sinners be present in us. In other words, think about this. The same friendliness that made sinners attracted to Jesus, whilst on the other hand they ran from the Pharisees, should characterize us. If sinners who have been saved and cherished Christ, meaning if Christians feel like they can't mess up around you, feel like if they can't do any wrong around you, something is wrong. Something is wrong. We need to work to see the love of God formed more in our hearts, looking more to what Christ has done for us to shape our love for one another. But if we shouldn't be unloving to our brothers and sisters because of our sin, we can argue for lesser things. We should be striving to preserve love for the brethren on minor differences as well. Just to make the point, we ought not to ostracize a brother because he voted for the BLP, for instance. That's, that's silly. We ought not to ostracize a brother because he holds a different minor theological point or that he cleans this way or that way. That's, that's not how we ought to be among our brothers. There are so many small things that loom large in our minds that get in the way of us loving our brothers and sisters. Friends, you know well how the love of God is sometimes veiled when our convictions lead us to pontificate incessantly, and by that I mean express our opinions in a very arrogant way, condescending way. We ought to love and display love the same way that God has displayed love to us throughout our Christian journey. Certainly there are areas where we are incorrect and do things incorrectly. There are ways that we are inconsistent and we have inconsistent views. 
Certainly, those are true. But yet, the Lord doesn't close the gates of heaven because he can't remember what's on page 37 of the London Baptist Confession. The Lord doesn't distance himself from us because we are just so slow to learn. That isn't how the Lord treats to the sheep. He deals with us tenderly, and we should have the same kindness, the same love for other saints. The conditions God required of us, He met Himself and has received us without us doing anything. We are passive recipients of salvation. All we did is lay hold on what God has offered to us. That's all we did. One that welcomes others in spite of their differences in opinion and seeks to cover a multitude of sin is one who loves, and these are the type of people we ought to be. So loving the brethren means providing for their needs as well as bearing with one another. And we are motivated to do this because of what God has done for us. God really does love you, dear Christian. With much care and measurable kindness, he directs his attention toward you. Like a doting father smiling upon you and is attentive to your every plight. What a wonderful Savior Jesus is, that his love is not conditioned upon your obedience, and his pursuit of your best interests is unmoved by your own sinfulness. How manifold the love of the Spirit that he abides with us each day, communicating to us the gospel's truths and empowering us to walk in the paths of righteousness. The love of God, the love that God has for the saints cannot be fully told. I, I read this quote by Tozer and it really struck me. He says that it's like visiting all the countries of the world and only having five minutes to explain it to your friend or trying to take the ocean into your hands. It's only but a glimpse that we see. As I said before, we are more sinful than we know and we are loved more than we know. Friends, this is the love of God. Our only task as required by this text is to respond by showing love to those who are themselves loved immeasurably by God, to care for them as best as we can in our various circumstances. And when we do this, the invisible God is seen as he works out his love in and through the church. Friends, let us consider to do this work while it is still day. Let us strive with all diligence to love the people God so identifies with. And in doing so, we not only confirm our standing before God, but also bless others with an overflow of the love that we have known and received.